Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. My next guest on the Bravery Academy is Liz Stout. This episode does come with a trigger warning as we'll be covering sensitive topics. So if you have little ears around or you're not in a good space to listen to this kind of episode, feel free to pause and move on to another Bravery Academy episode. Liz is a survivor of the Parkland shooting in 2018. Today she shares her story of learning to heal post the trauma and she shares some of the tools that have helped her learn to heal and thrive again. Welcome, Liz, to the Bravery Academy. I'm thrilled to have you on here to share your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Can we start with a little simple get to know you? Where do you live now and where are you from? Sure. Right now I'm in Pentagon City, right across the river from Washington, D.C. And I am from Coral Springs, Florida, which is South Florida, and it's about an hour north of Miami. Beautiful. And can you tell me what your life was like growing up in Florida? I loved my childhood. I had three older sisters and my parents worked full time, but I was either with my sisters, I was in school or with my friends. I was always in sports too. I was very privileged, very busy, and just a really, really happy and innocent kid for sure. I know we've got a big thing to talk about. And I know you've been really vocal about your experience. Can mm-hmm. you tell me what was happening for you in your life around that early 2018 in February? What age were you? What stage? What was happening for you? Yeah. I was 17 at the time. I was in my senior year. And I think the first or second week of February, I had gotten accepted into the University of Florida, which is my dream school since 2005. So I was kind of checked out academically. I was like, look, we're chilling the rest of the year. I got in my school. This is awesome. I was finishing up the yearbook. The cheer season was done. And I was just really excited for the next chapter in my life. And when I look back around photos at that time, I was always with my friends and I was just out and all of my pictures, I'm smiling, laughing really hard. And it was just a really happy time in my life. I'm so grateful for the experiences I had throughout all of my academic years, but everything changed on Valentine's Day in 2018 because 
we had a school shooter. I went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, which is in Parkland, Florida. So this Valentine's Day, I know the day before, my best friend Sarah and I went to Publix, the grocery store, to get our mom's flowers and chocolates because Sarah and I were in an uh, AP literature class and we had to write Shakespearean poetry <laughs> for someone. And so we both chose our moms for our Valentines because we were learning about Shakespeare in this class. So anyway, we go to the store, we get our moms the stuff. And then the next morning I gave my mom everything and I showed her the poem I wrote for my class and it was just very cute. And every single morning my mom made my breakfast and my lunch because I'm the baby of the family. So she was really milking <laughs> having kids at home and not being the empty nester quite yet. But she made me breakfast. I gave her everything. I took a photo and then I left for school and I went to the senior lot. So I had AP literature first and really normal day so far. We have a fire drill, nothing out of the ordinary. And one of our friends in this class was absent. But then he came back at the end of the period and he said, I got snitched on for vaping. This whole bunch of group of boys got caught vaping this morning. And so as a result, administration locked a bunch of bathrooms on campus. So we were like, oh, that's so stupid. This is just like today's gossip. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's snitching on people for vaping. But I had lunch. I ate in the yearbook room. Third period, I had astronomy. And then fourth period, I finally had AP psychology, which was the last period of the day. And this was also my favorite class, my favorite teacher. It was just the best. And this class was in a building that's isolated from the rest of the campus. And it's called the 1200 building or the freshman building, just because there's a lot of freshman classes in there. And Stone Douglas has 13 buildings and the 1200 building and the 1300 building are very much isolated from everywhere else. The 1200 building was the only three-story building on campus and housed about 900 students. How big, so is, the I had, How big is the full scope? We had around... 3,200 kids by the time I graduated, but I think it's like 45 acres or something. It's a big campus, Yeah. but um, this building was relatively new and I had a classroom on the first floor. So I remember walking in that day and the energy was just incredibly high because it was the last period. It was Valentine's day. Everyone had their teddy bears and chocolates and stuff. And it was just good energy. And my teacher wasn't there yet. So we were waiting in the hallway and I asked my friend, I was like, what if we just left the senior lot gates open? Let's just, let's just skip out. Let's just leave. And she was like, no, I feel bad. We should stay. We love Miss Riovan. This is our teacher. So I was like, all right. So we stayed. <laughs> I'm laughing because you don't think that, that decision is life altering. It's not funny, but um, no, but that's okay, right? Because this is the way you go, how that moment could have changed it is insane. It's crazy to think about. And I was happy to stay, of course, because I love this class. And so we walk in and right when you walk in the classroom, my desk is right next to the door. I was the very first row and I wasn't in the back of the room, but I was the second desk to the back. And then I, my friend sat behind me. No one sat in front of me. And that row was just very short because the teacher's desk was right there. And then the rest of the classroom was full of complete rows of five or six desks. And in this period, we were learning about personality 
in psychology. And I remember my teacher was talking about oral fixation only because I texted my family and I was like, this is hilarious. You guys, I definitely had this as a child because I sucked my thumb until I was eight. (laughs) So my family were just texting and we're laughing and my friend behind me takes the pass to run to the restroom and she ends up texting me and she's like, why is the first floor locked? Why do I have to go to the second floor? Something along those lines. And I was like, oh, this is the vape saga. You got to go to the second floor to go to the bathroom. So she walks up to the second floor, presents a pass to a baseball coach who's acting as security. And she comes back down and not even five minutes later, the shooting starts. And it was one, two, three very slow shots. And I knew what it was immediately. My dad was an FBI agent my entire life. We used to go shooting. And it was so surreal because Parkland is a very safe city. There's not really crime. So gunshots are going off. And I'm thinking this has to be a drill because one, we're in Parkland. Two, a couple of weeks prior, every single class we were going over what would we do in the instance of an emergency. So everyone just stops. No one says a word when the gunshots go off and we all just look at my teacher and then everyone just stood up at the same exact time and ran to the opposite side where the door is. So we were in the wrong spot. We were facing the classroom door and there's a glass panel in it. And there was like 30 of us. So we all run to that side and we're not even there for five seconds because my teacher says, this is the wrong side. Go to my desk. Her desk shares the same wall as the door. So we're all trying to go behind the desk and we end up kind of in a shape of an L just completely around the desk. And when she says that I run over and kids are like army crawling. The room is already chaotic. Like desks are already upside down and stuff. And I get to the desk and I put myself where the chairs pushed in. And then I felt really bad for taking that spot because I was like, I feel very calm because I know that my dad just would have made me calm in this situation. Just growing up, we talked about different emergencies. So I was very much trying to just channel what my dad would do. So I get out of that space and I have my teacher, I have like, I'm wrapped, my arms wrapped around her. She's a little cute lady. And the gunshots are getting closer. They're getting louder. And there's screams in the room. There's screams in the hallway. And we're all still kind of like, is this a drill? Like, what is happening? What is this? And 221, he started shooting. And at 223, he shot into our classroom. So he hit uh, three to four classrooms, went back to a couple and shot into them again, and then came to ours. And when he shot into the room, every, like we screamed, I just was squeezing my teacher, looking at the ground. And he ends up hitting four people in our classroom because they were too exposed. They kind of ended up near more so where the podium was, where my teacher was having the lesson. And so they were just in perfect sight of where the shooter was. When he shoots into the room, that was just the most surreal moment of my life because 
I wasn't even thinking about it, but my brain was like, you're going to die. Get ready. You're about to die. You're about to get shot. And so once the glass broke, I was expecting him to just put his hand through and open the door and just really do some damage. He never went in any of the classrooms. He just kept going and stayed in the hallways. But we just kind of were silent and waited for him to come back or something. But he kept going toward the west side of the building and then I eventually went to the second floor. But at this point, the room is just there's smoke everywhere because the pressure from the gun is so high that the ceiling tiles are like coming up and it everything is just falling apart. It looks like a war zone. There's bullet holes all through the wall. There's blood everywhere. And now there's glass everywhere. And so now that this is real, I called my dad immediately and he didn't answer. So I called my mom. She picks up right away. And I was whispering that there was a shooter and she was like, what, what? And I I couldn't hear her. The service was bad. I also didn't want to talk because I had no idea where he was. So I hung up on her and that really freaked her out. But I texted her right away and I said, mom, listen to me. There's a shooter at Douglas and he shot into my classroom. I'm okay, but call dad, whatever. And so now my mom goes into that group chat that I was texting and about sucking my thumb. So we have like this hilarious conversation that's immediately call Rich, shooter at Douglas. And my sisters are at work or they're home. And I know one of my sisters was at work and she just fell to her knees because all that they knew was my classroom was shot into. They didn't know what happened. And my dad eventually picks up like second or third time his phone rings. And he confirms with someone from Broward Sheriff's or something. And then he's going 120 miles an hour, lights and sirens as fast as possible. Back in the classroom, after I called him and called my mom, the boy next to me called the police. So I remember he was just very shaken up, obviously. And the dispatcher had asked what our location was. And I just spit out the roads where the building was near the intersection of. So I can hear the dispatcher and then I'm hearing sirens coming. And so I'm like, oh, they're coming, they're coming. And the whole time there's this one boy who was shot and my brain is thinking he's having an asthma attack or something because he's on the other side of the desk. So I can't see him, but I refuse to look. And he's, he's saying like, somebody help me, somebody help me. I need water and just begging. And this was right after the room was shot into. So we were silent and I was like, you have to be quiet. You have to be quiet. And I think my entire first year of college, I thought about that scene and just dealt with deep survivor's guilt for so long, just from that one interaction that I had with him. And during the 20 minutes where we're waiting for the police to come, my teacher and one other boy are just, I handed someone a jacket to use as a tourniquet. They're using lunch boxes. This one 16 year old boy, absolutely saved someone's life by just applying pressure and just sitting there with her in direct sight. Like the shooter could have come, come back. My teacher locked her door at one point, like this boy, my teacher were just fully on and active and just incredibly brave. And by two 30, we hear the police and I just hear yelling 
And so I'm like, they got him. Why are they yelling? What, what, what's sort of yelling about? And so I just assume that. And I tell everyone that I was talking to who was at my school, but not in the building that it was real because they thought it was fake until I sent a photo. So the police come in at two 30 and I think that they got him, but the shooter at this point already left. And so my teacher's standing at the door trying to get their attention. She's just saying, Hey, over and over again to try to get them to come in because they're, they're getting bodies in the hallway. They're getting bodies in classrooms. And finally these cops come in and they carry out the injured and they take out the boy who was begging for help first. And he was just white. There was like no blood left in his body. Then they grab a girl who was shot in the knee. And then they said to get out basically. So that was the first time I stood up in the whole shooting. And I look above the desk and that's just where all of the damage was done. And so Carmen Shentrup was laying there and she was shot and killed immediately in the classroom. And there was another girl who was saved, but I didn't see her. But they say to get out and to hug the wall on the way out. And so I remember I passed my desk. I looked at all my stuff and I just, we left everything behind. And I remember turning to go in the hallway. And I felt like I was in the twilight zone because I was so confused on the way it looked when I walked in and the way it looked when I walked out. Because again, smoky debris everywhere, bullet holes everywhere. The magazines from the gun are all over the ground. Bullets are all over the ground. The laptop one of the girls was working on was there. There was two dead bodies side by side and blood everywhere. And the cops are just screaming to hug the wall. And I'm just running. I mean, I'm I'm jogging out. And by the time I get out, I called my mom and I told her I was out. And she was already there. Once my dad got there, he called me and was just like, stay at the spot. Wait for me. I have to work. He worked for about an hour and at 3.45, he came and got me and we went home. But I was so grateful that my dad was even there that day and could take me home because it was just the most insane day of my life. Even talking about it five years later, it still seems very, very surreal. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, 
that's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries so you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. How does it feel now in the body? Chest is tight. Yeah. The only reason I'm able to tell the story is EMDR. Mm-hmm. I have the most amazing psychologist who I've had these last mm-hmm. five years. And I think even just mentioning these resources are so important because so many gun violence survivors do not have access to these resources and their lives just get worse because their mental health gets worse because they don't, they don't have the right resources. After I had EMDR and I went to college and I didn't have the same therapist anymore. I went through like eight or nine different therapists because I would tell my story and they'd be like, whoa, that's a lot. Like they wouldn't even know how to respond. And it was just so emotionally and mentally taxing that I gave up because I was like, no one can help me. And then by the time it was 2020 and it was the pandemic mm-hmm. and telehealth was becoming a thing again, I was like, all right, I absolutely need to see this therapist that I first saw right after Parkland. And I've been seeing her ever since. Can you talk about what it was like then afterwards and how you took one foot in front of the other and started to do that process of figuring out how to heal and, and maybe explain more about what EMDR is people that don't know. I do, but yeah. I think it's an amazing thing. <laughs> I, I was so confused on who I even was anymore because I talked about my childhood in the beginning and having that sense of happiness and innocence all of the time. And that was just robbed immediately. And I feel like there is a version of me that is forever trapped in that classroom that never came out. And right after I was becoming depressed, I went to like four funerals the week after and my parents saw it right away because I was always a really happy kid. And they tried saying, Liz, you're depressed. I think you might need therapy. And I was like, no, I don't need therapy. I'm actually fine. Thank you so much for asking though. (laughs) Um, And I fought them on therapy. I did not think I needed it. And I remember, I think it was a week after the shooting, my mom found my psychologist who I see now online. And she and my dad were really begging me to go. And I refused. And then I remember the day of when they were leaving, I was in the shower and my mom just walks in the bathroom. And she was like, we're going to therapy. Please meet us there. And I was like, all right, she's serious. <laughs> okay, I'll come. So I went and I remember I was late. I was crying. I did not want to be there. My therapist was being so welcoming and warm and was making it a very safe environment. But my, fi- my fight or flight was just 
mm-hmm. off the charts. So I was just very, very, very emotional. And when I kept going back to therapy, I was underreporting. She would hand me a, a worksheet on what would be PTSD, but at the time it was acute stress. And I was just lying. I was just saying I was fine. I was sleeping. I, you know, I was, I'm fine. And then I would go home and my mom would be like, who is this kid? Like, she's not eating. She's not sleeping. She's not going out. She won't see her friends. So she would call my therapist and there would just be this huge discrepancy of what I was saying in therapy and what my mom is saying. And my therapist finally, she just would get it out of me and she just made it a very safe environment. And I was diagnosed with PTSD by April. And then I think by May or June, we started EMDR and EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's a great tool for PTSD because a lot of those memories are in a very emotional part of your brain. And so once the shooting happened and reporters would try talking to me about it, I'd, I'd be shaking, my body shaking, and you can't even tell the story. You start crying. And EMDR basically takes those memories from that very emotional part of your brain and kind of puts them toward the front. And it's that happens through bilateral stimulation. So that can be done with your eyes or tappers. I had tappers. Okay. And for, I think, several times a week because she wanted to do it a lot before I went to college. I did EMDR and I was just, I would just sit with the tappers, have my eyes shut and I would just walk through the shooting. I would just say every single detail I could. And that was incredibly exhausting. That was definitely the hardest therapy of my life. I hated EMDR. I told my therapist that it felt like a chore because I would come home and I would just pass out. I would just fall asleep. And in retrospect, it saved my life. But at the time, I hated it because it was just so emotionally taxing. Painful, like emotionally painful on top of yeah. what you're already going through. So your nervous yeah. system, like you said, was hijacked and that flight fights remote. What did you, yeah. so you weren't sleeping. What else did you notice in the body? I was not sleeping. My mom would have to sleep with me or she would give me medicine to sleep. Mm. I stopped eating. I which was weird because I love food. I've always loved food and I couldn't even finish a meal. I don't know how much weight I lost, but I lost a good amount. And I kept having chest pains. I remember right after I got out of the building and I called my mom, she was crying and she asked, are you okay? And I said, my chest hurts. And I remember that was like just the starting point. Of now, even today, if I have anxiety, I always feel it in my chest right away. So if anything, this experience made me a lot more intuitive and a lot more in touch with myself. But I mean, I, I didn't even know I was in fight or flight after the shooting. I didn't because I just had no idea what was happening. I wasn't familiar with anything going on in my body or my brain. Well, it's the opposite of what you've been brought, brought up with, right? You had safety in your life. It was warm, comfortable, inviting, and then to go to that complete other extreme, of course, you're not going to know what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to respond because it's so foreign to you. What was the support support like from the school and after that? It was interesting. The community, I want to say that they came together, but what happened was politicized so quickly that 
it was just immediate left and right. In terms of the school, we went back two weeks after the shooting. So it happened on 14th of February and we went back the 28th of February. My mom was so against me going back. She did not want me going, but I really wanted to go back in between the funerals and the therapy sessions and wanting to stay alone. I was with my best group of girlfriends all of the time. So I had personal support, but when I was at school, I remember when I went back that first day, I could not stop crying. And it sucked because it was the first day back and I didn't feel safe at school anymore, which was very bizarre because if I wasn't at home, I was at school, whether it was for academics or cheerleading or yearbook, whatever. And so now I felt like this isn't really my home anymore. I'm also struggling with the loss of innocence. And I'm also seeing just the same images in my mind over and over again. I would walk past the building and I would feel nauseous and I would be in the classrooms and I would think about my exit strategy or my hiding spot. I couldn't focus on the actual curriculum. I mean, the response from the teachers was really interesting. And I don't want to blame them for how they responded because we were all in a weird spot. But one of my teachers said that death was inevitable and that we kind of had to push forward and, and move on and stay on top of the curriculum. And I was like, what happened in that building and in that classroom was not inevitable. That's, I, I couldn't believe she said that. And then with the yearbook, my advisor kept asking me to stay. And I felt bad because I was the editor, but I could not be at school anymore. It was, I was not, I was nauseous all of the time. And there would be cops with big guns, you know, strolling the hallways. And so I think by March or April, I had just stopped going to Stoneman Douglas and I went to Broward virtual, which is our County virtual program. And I finished up taking economics and something else, some other credit. So I still graduated with Douglas and I still went to prom and everything, but I felt like the school could have been a lot better in terms of supporting the kids because they brought like therapy dogs and therapists. And then they were trying to tell us to focus on the curriculum and the academics. And I just, I I couldn't, I was focusing on how am I going to get out of the classroom if I need to again? And it was interesting because there was like tears of trauma. There was a little bit under a third of the school in the building who firsthand experienced it. And then you have kids, like all of the March for Our Lives kids, all of the activists that are associated with Parkland and whatever, all of those kids were not in the building. So they were able to like come out and advocate because they were less traumatized. And so I feel like those types of kids went back to school and they were like a little bit more on track. I don't want to speak for them, but I know people in my class, we were struggling. Like we were seriously, seriously struggling. And the school was trying to, I feel like do a one size fits all and different students just had very, very different needs at that time. No wonder, like life trauma like that, a life shock like that is beyond just an acute or chronic stress. It changes mm-hmm. everything in that moment. So it sounds mm-hmm. like you've been figuring out your way because there's no roadmap, right? There's no roadmap for it. I'm sure friends that have been through that also did different things and responded differently because of who yeah. they are. 
Yeah. I remember finding Facebook pages like the Rebel Project, which is, it was founded by Columbine survivors, but I was trying to find a network of shooting survivors because it was such a bizarre network. But then I felt like after my school shooting and, and my school was the one that came out with never again. And, you know, we were so determined that it would never happen again. And I feel like after 2018, I just kept seeing mass shootings on the news. And so that makes it a lot harder to heal. And there is no roadmap. I mean, even today, I feel like I'm still very lost on top of being in my early 20s in a new city. Like there's just also this entire layer that really makes it a lot harder to put one foot in front of the other sometimes. And to connect with others because it's a lived experience that's very, very unique to a small group of people. So that makes sense trying to find a community that ha- understand or have compassion for that suffering. That's a really mm-hmm. important thing. And also I'm hearing that's also what you're going to be creating and have been working towards, right? You're Even in this, like you said, I'm in your early 20s, you've been navigating through this post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and all these elements of it. And you're going, I need to find a good out of this, right? That's the bit that I hear of bravery in this story for you, Liz. It's quite, quite exceptional and it's not easy. Tell me about what other aspects in regards to the the advocacy that sort of helped you through this process. It's interesting because I feel like right after the shooting, I tried doing the advocating. I tried joining in on the marches and stuff and it burned me out really quick. Yeah. And then took the summer off, went to college in the fall and by spring, I was president of the March for Our Lives chapter in Gainesville. It burned me out really quick. I would try. I wanted to be a part of it. And I just physically and emotionally couldn't. And then my sophomore and junior year was mostly the pandemic. And those were years that I needed to just heal. And I am very grateful that I was able to spend time at home with my parents during that time. But my senior year of college, I had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. for an internship. And I interned for the University of Florida's federal relations team, which is essentially lobby their lobby team. And I felt like just being involved and affiliated with Capitol Hill and I was learning how to read bills and legislation, I knew I wanted to stay in this area and that I found something that I liked, but I had to keep going on like what I actually wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I found a graduate program for mass communication and I'm specializing in public interest communications because that's just learning entirely on how to enact social change. So I'm doing that now. And I feel like I'm learning those methods now that I will use later down the line because I feel like now I'm not much in a space to like actually work for a nonprofit for gun violence entirely. So I wanted to start a podcast and have survivors come on, but I also realized there's people like my dad who also have been professionally impacted by gun violence. And then I was thinking, I always see the surgeons on the news that are like, we can't keep doing this, who are so frustrated that they keep tending to people who have been shot or killed by gun violence. And so Ultimately, what I'm doing is a podcast with solo episodes and interview episodes of any and everyone impacted by gun violence and just what life looks like after. Because like you said, there's no roadmap. And so very unexpected things can happen. 
good things can happen, bad things, but I just want people to come on and just share their story and feel like they're getting some power back at least. Your dad's experience with being in the FBI at that time, how's he felt through this? He was very frustrated because a classmate of mine recorded the entire shooting. I think it was played at the march. It was played in the trial. And so she had this footage. And I remember right after the shooting, her and three other girls from the class, and we still talk to this day, she, she sent us these videos and she was like, these are for us. These are for nobody else. Do not send these around. And we were like, for sure, we won't send these anywhere. But somehow videos ended up everywhere. But my dad was saying, Liz, I need those videos to give to the FBI. And this was only a couple of days after the shooting. Mm-hmm. And I, I was reluctant because I was like, this is a secret. No one can see these videos. These are such sensitive mm-hmm. and horrible things. And so I remember he and I sat down together. My mom tried and the audio just made her walk out of the room She's crying. She couldn't even listen to it. And my dad, I remember he did, he didn't say a word. He watched the whole thing. And when it finished, he was just devastated. I mean, he, he was watching a video of his kid almost getting shot at. And he was so frustrated because the FBI received a tip on our shooter based off of a comment he submitted to YouTube or something and the FBI passed up on this tip. So the institution he worked for was responsible for what happened, partly responsible for what happened. And this is an institution he gave his life to for 22 years. I mean, he was on SWAT. He he did work that was incredibly dangerous. He went to countries all around the world, literally gave his life. And then they pass up on a tip and they failed. They failed. The school failed. And my family was just very, very frustrated at that failure because it was personal. Mm. And my dad had reached out to FBI leadership and none of them ever checked up on him. None of them checked up on our family. And it's just kind of like a kick in the teeth. I mean, he really expected more. I mean, of course there was agents that he was friends with. There was retired agents and whatnot, but it was more of like the leadership, the people who should have been saying, Hey, we take accountability. This was wrong and it will never happen again, but that never happened. And that was just really, really disappointing. The lack Mm -hmm. of empathy. Yeah. And it's something so simple, but could have probably changed that experience for both of you. I think if my dad had heard back from the people that he wanted to, and I think me seeing that would have just made me happier because it was weird. He would watch me grieve and I would watch him grieve. So we were kind of grieving on our own personal situations, but also for each other because there was, he also had some guilt because he didn't pick up the phone when I called him. I mean, granted he came, I was fine and I never was mad at him for a second in my life, Mm -hmm. but I think about those things and my parents and I just really became a unit because I was the only kid at home. My sister was in college and I had two older sisters are grown with kids, but the three of us really had to learn 
had a heel together and we were all just, I don't know. My parents are incredible. I'm just, I'm so grateful for them. And as hard as those years were, if I didn't have them, I, I don't know where I would even be. Amazing support to have. What did you take away from learning to heal together? What helped you guys heal together? I think for me, the biggest lessons I learned in therapy were self-compassion and empathy because it was hard for me to heal because I remember I would think I was weak for even feeling. And I had a lot of survivor's guilt and I thought I should have done more. I ha- I wanted to help Carmen. I had guilt for leaving her behind. I remember there was so much that I thought I should have done that I did not do. And my therapist had to be like, Liz, were you, were you going to save everybody in that room by yourself? Just you? She was like, you were looking after your life. You were texting your friends and family saying goodbye. You did what you had to do. And what you did was incredible. And I mean, it took me years, years to even become more intuitive with my emotions, learning how to regulate my emotions. And I'm still trying to do self-compassion and empathy, and we still work on it in IFS therapy. But I would say those two factors helped me heal the most. And I feel like I had to relay that to my parents. So we were all learning together, basically. When I hear you say that you're still working through that, I'm like, of course, you're 20, right? Or like, like early 20s. And mm-hmm. look what you've been through. There's there's no time frame on this. So even you sharing about the first of all, it was really, 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 really hard to go to therapy. When someone is feeling uncomfortable, that may listen to this podcast one day and be like, I just don't think I'm brave enough to go. It's a big thing to do that, right? To reach out and go, I'm going to go and get help, not because I'm broken, not because I'm weak, not because I, I'm not good enough. It's because I choose me. Right. Right. And it's not sustainable to live in suffering. Exactly. And I don't know why there's like a stigma of shame or embarrassment or I'm weak because I look back now at my 17 year old self of course she needed therapy. She needed so much help. Of course she did. And I also like to think of it as treat yourself how you would treat your best friends. So if your best friend's struggling, you're not going to be like, you don't need therapy. You'll be fine. Just pull yourself together. Like talk to yourself how you would talk to your friends because I definitely push so much love to my friends and family, but I I realize I'm not doing the same thing for myself. (laughs) But that also took years of understanding but it's it's really scary to go to therapy and i think even just having the thought that maybe i need it that's an amazing first step i think you're doing amazing the only reason is because of therapy i sometimes have to take a step back and be like okay i went through this terrible terrible thing somehow 6 months later i went to a top five public university. I graduated with two degrees. I'm in my master's now. I have a full-time job. So I say these things and I'm like, how, how did I do any of this? Because I also have so many 
images and memories of just being in my bed crying, being like, when is this going to end? When is this pain and grief going to end? Because I just feel like I'm drowning in it. But you learn to balance it and you just kind of learn to live with it. So I definitely still hold grief for sure for, of course, all of the the victims and the people who were injured. But I hold a lot of grief for myself. And that took me years to acknowledge because in therapy, we, we had talked about an old Liz and a new Liz. And the old Liz was fun and she would go out and she never gave a second thought about her confidence. Mm. And this new Liz had no self-esteem. I had social anxiety all of a sudden, which was weird because I was extroverted my entire life. And now I can't even walk into a room and I look at the floor and it's just sad because you also, you see it in real time. Like, this isn't me. Like, I don't know why this is happening, but I can't help it. And I just, it's sad because it, I, I felt like I would beat that girl up a lot. And now I have to give her love, compassion, love. Yeah. yeah. And it, that took me so long to learn. Oh yeah. Wherever you are in your life, when you learn to heal those parts of you that have been hurt, then you can start to see that you can shift the way that the body responds and it's not a, a quick fix. So I think people hearing your story is more than powerful just going, I got through this. It's like, I'm learning to heal and it ain't easy. Right. Yeah. What do you think bravery is? Bravery is uncomfortable. Bravery is, it's just going out of your comfort zone and knowing that you have to do something that is best for you. So for my podcast, of course, I'm freaking out inside. I'm like, oh my God, I'm very scared to do this. (laughs) I I gotta go on and tell my whole story and oh God, detail by detail. That's a really scary concept, but the end result is a lot more significant than me just being afraid. And also, of course, I'm going to be afraid. I I give myself space to have that fear. I'm not going to sit here and shame myself because maybe five years ago I would have done that. But now I have to actually just welcome all of the parts that come up and the parts comes from IFS therapy. But yeah. It's beautiful. Liz, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story and the growth that you've done to be in this place to do that. That's amazing. It is so much internal leadership that you've shown and courage that I think will spark, hopefully, a ripple effect out in the world with whatever you're doing. And the thing is, like you said, you didn't don't know where this is going with the next stages and the next pieces of the puzzle, but you're putting these building blocks in place with your degree and your training and with sharing your story, with bringing empathy into the forefront and self-compassion. I, I, either way, there's there's some good coming out of it, and I really want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Those such mm-hmm. kind words. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to learn about the podcast that you're creating, where do they go? You can listen anywhere. It's called Trigger Therapy. It'll be uploaded to all platforms. And the first episode will just be entirely what happened to me on February 14th, 2018. Amazing. Thank you, Liz, for sharing your story. And I hope anybody listening to it today feels inspired to take a little steps of bravery in their day. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Bravery Academy. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking to take your support for the podcast to the next level, visit patreon.com forward slash the Bravery Academy 
to access exclusive content and get early access to our upcoming episodes. Your feedback means the world to us. So please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for being part of the Bravery Academy community. Stay brave, stay curious, and keep challenging yourself to grow. Until next time. Welcome to Trigger Therapy, a podcast delving into the journey of life after gun violence. I'm Elizabeth, and I went through an unimaginable experience when my classroom was shot into during the 2018 mass school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, Florida. This life-altering event transformed me in countless ways, leading me to connect with numerous other survivors of gun violence, each with compelling stories that deserve to be heard. With Trigger Therapy, we aspire to foster a more understanding and empathetic society by sharing powerful narratives from survivors and professionals whose lives have been deeply impacted by gun violence. Through engaging solo monologues and enlightening interviews, we seek to create a safe space for these stories to reach the hearts of listeners far and wide. We invite you to join us on this meaningful journey of healing, so subscribe wherever you are listening.